Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. I don't know where we are. They blindfold me every week and bring me here. Actually, I think we're in Matt Allen's backyard. <laughs> oh, welcome to True Crime Uncensored, produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Allo Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rocked to the cradle of rhythm and blues. The man over there, Howard Lapidus. I like the way you point, like they can see, see you. Yeah. I want to make sure I know who I'm talking about. Always a pleasure. Yeah. And why don't you do some research? <laughs> Yeah, happy birthday to Howard Lapidus. We received birthday greetings for Howard from every international jewel thief. <laughs> that actually makes me feel good. It should. That I have all the it, jewel thieves. Uh... Interpol wants to know what they're doing. We have the answer. They're wishing Howard Lapidus a happy birthday. Happy Always birthday, Howard. <laughs> Thank That's you, Mark. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, who gave us more information on Jack Vandersilk than even Jack knows about. And he doesn't know Jack. He knows a lot about Korea, though. Jack, we got nine pages on you. Yeah, we know more. Yeah, we know everything about you. Everything. Every possible thing. <laughs> I know his shoe size. <laughs> Did you know his shoe size? Uh, it would have been funnier if that was in the microphone, Mark. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's way up here. Are you getting me loud and clear? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can okay. hear you. Okay, no problem. Okay. I gotta ask you the first question because I'm gonna pretend I know nothing, which is not difficult to pretend. <laughs> We're gonna be talking about Korea today. Uh, North, there's a North Korea and a South Korea, kind of like North Dakota and South Dakota. Uh, <laughs> I like that. Well, I like that. Why? Why is that? Why isn't there just a Korea? <laughs> well, in history, there was a Korea, and uh, kind of like the. Um, United States. There were different. There were different tribes in different places, um, but they eventually settled into one kingdom. Um, being a kind of, if you look at the map, they hang off from the uh, the mainland of China, kind of like. Um, well, we won't. Make, uh, <laughs> we won't make harmful uh, comparisons here, but but anyway, it, it dangles down uh, from China, and it was a kind of a protectorate of China. China thought it was the middle kingdom of the world and ruled everything um, in its reach, and so it was subject to China until about the end of the 19th century, and as you probably remember I'm not that old China kind of fell apart at that stage and and the Japanese moved in on it oh and the Japanese controlled it the whole peninsula um, until World War two no and in losing the war they lost Korea Korea then came was presumably under the direction of what eventually was the United Nations, and the two main powers at that point in time were Russia and the United States. Uh, the Germans had been defeated in Europe, and the Russians were encouraged to help in the battle against the Japanese, 
And so at that point in time, after the uh, Japanese surrendered, uh, the uh, understanding between Stalin and uh, Franklin Roosevelt was that the Russians would occupy the upper portion of that country and the lower portion would be uh, run by the United States. And there were a couple of, there were a couple of uh, young um, uh, military men who worked for the administration, the American administration, uh, who as near the end of the war uh, had to go to the library and get down the National Geographic and find a map of, of the of this place. And <laughs> they didn't they know anything about it. They just had to look it up. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. So they looked at that and they decided that there was this 38th parallel that kind of went through the middle. Ah. So they began to put in writing that that was the separation point between the U.S. interests and the Russian interests, and that's how we got to Korea's. Oh, that was kind of an executive decision. Did they ask the Koreans how they felt about this? No, no. <laughs> no. The Koreans didn't have anything to do with it. Since when does America were, ask anybody asked, else what they think? They were, they were upset about that, as a matter of fact. Um, but um, we, we had the military, and the Russians had the military, and so uh, they were subject people, and they had been subject people to the Japanese. Why should it be any different after that? So we, no one consulted the, the Koreans on how they felt about being chopped in half. We just said, this is, uh, this is the way it's going to go. This is the way it's going to go. However, there was a good intention at that point, and presumably both the Russians and the Americans had agreed at Yalta on a lot of things about how the world was going to be after the war was over. And one of the things got, that got very short shrift was what was going to happen with this Korean Peninsula. And the idea was, as they say, that there would be this division but the, between the two major powers, but the understanding was that in a certain number of years, undetermined number of years, uh, the society would be put together and there would be some kind of plebiscite uh, by which the people decided how their government was going to be organized and there would indeed be one government for all of Korea. What happened? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, we, the, there was a, there, the hot war was over, but as you know, in the late 40s, a cold war broke out and there we were facing the Russians on the other side of the 38th parallel and um, the understanding was that these people really couldn't couldn't govern themselves at this point, and so the military occupations um, tended to uh, dominate the societies. Now wait a Actually, second, wait a second, wait a second. If I if I lived there, if I was yes. Joe Korea, right, right. and, and uh, my country is basically being taken over by two different military forces from two different right. countries, arguing over who controls what. And I'm going, hey, uh, excuse me, I live here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what about me? Yeah, what about me? What about my rights? Yeah. Well, at that point, there wasn't really much of a concession of what rights they had. Um, it is true that, you know, in a long, uh, relative several years, 
that led up to what we call the Korean War from 1945 to 1950, uh, that the people who were Christians and lived in the north wanted to move down to South Korea where there was religious freedom for them. The uh, people who were the communists in South Korea... Wanted to move north. Uh, <laughs> wanted, wanted to go north. Well, why don't we put in, like, a rapid transit so they could just, like, switch sides? <laughs> well, at that point, the, uh, uh, the nation was not very well developed. The highways were relatively poor. Movement was mostly by foot, by animal. And um, so things moved, moved slowly. Yeah. So that sounds like a whole thing is a big recipe for trouble right there. Well, and, and, it, and it turned out, you're correct, that's what happened. People got greedy and angry and all of that sort of stuff. And pretty soon one side said, this all ought to belong to us. And the other side said, no, we're the, we're the ones that ought to own this. And, um, you know, as a, as a result, and come in the middle of July of 1950, uh, there were, the war broke out. So exactly who was fighting who in the Korean... Well, of course, in America, we don't call it a war. We call it a police action. We call it a conflict, right? Yeah, that's why you can't get your VA benefits. Well, and that was, see, that was the first undeclared war, right? Yeah. I mean, we had declared war in World War II, but this was... They, they, Congress never declared war in the, in the uh, Korea situation. Anyway, I digress. Um, they... Uh, so the, when the North wanted, the Soviet had set up what was eventually to become a Soviet system, a communistic type of society, a communistic kind of government. Um, they wanted to make that true of the whole peninsula. Uh, the Americans were enamored of democracy. Um, they weren't quite as missionary about it. And so um, in the middle of July, um, the North American, the North Korean forces um, under Kim, Jong, Kim Il-sung, whose name we may talk about more later, um, was there to say, uh, this is going to be all ours. So, so they, they, they made a move to take the whole thing. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. And America, which ran the South, said, no, you're not. Well, you know, uh, President Truman was in charge at that point, and there was question about what were we going to do about it. There was question about whether um, we really had promised the world that we were going to defend this or not. Some people thought it was uh, not worth defending. Um, and interestingly, a fellow whose name you might recall, a name of Dean Acheson. Oh, yeah. W was the Secretary of State back in that time. And he had made um, speeches about where the American interest would lie in this uh, post-war world. And as he itemized the places, he overlooked Korea. He didn't mention it. Mm. And there were those who said this created uh, a sense of opportunity um, in the communist countries, in particular, you know, the, the leader of the whole band was 
was Stalin, and Stalin was the most predominant leader, and uh, there was consultation between Stalin and the uh, leadership he had installed uh, in North Korea, and also with the Chinese. And said, "Look, they don't know what they're they don't know what they're going to do. Maybe this is the time to strike." And uh, he gave permission to Kim Il Sung, the Korean uh, leader, uh, to go ahead. And uh, so they made the attack in in July of. Uh, um, uh, 1950. Oh, that's unpleasant. My cousin was in that <clears throat> conflict. Came back alive, however. It was a nasty conflict. And and a lot of people got hurt. So, a lot of people got dead, too. Yeah. A lot of people got dead. Meanwhile, well, I keep thinking about the Koreans <laughs> sitting there going, what the hell? I mean... <laughs> It does seem it's like it's like they're not real people. Well, let, let's put it this way: we were treating them as a as a kind of subject nation. Now, Americans don't like to characterize their history that way, um, but there are a lot of Filipinos who feel that they were treated in the same way. Um, that back in that era, uh, you know, we were a dominating power, and uh, the. The thing that had happened between 1945 and 1950, in 1945 we were allies with the Russians. By 1950, uh, we recognized them as as our enemies. Um, Boy, things sure change not, in a hurry. Exactly, and so so our sense of interest and what it meant to be in Korea, among other places. Um, was had had changed. Um, it was it was now a contested area rather than just a political fiefdom that they had split up. Wow, just what we need, more conflict. Uh, for you just joined us, we're talking to Jack Vanderslick, author of the new book, The Korean Crisis, One People, Two Nations, A World on the Brink. And if I was a Korean, I'd be pissed off about everything. <laughs> no matter which side you're on. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> If you're in North Korea, you're fat and happy because, you know, you believe in their divinity. I have no idea well, what he said, do you? He yeah, said the, they, they all the like the to eat divinity. people believe in the supernatural and spiritual leadership. They're like uh, gods. The bloodline. True that it, it is true that the Kims, who became a dynasty, um, starting with Kim Il-sung, it is true that he was magnified in every way possible um, to, to ob obtain the loyalty of the people. And by the way, when after the war, the American side really did not do very well. Uh, the Koreans on the, on the American side did not do very well. Actually, the Koreans on the communist side, the North Koreans, uh, prospered much more. It is true that the country had been devastated by the war, uh, but they had they had mining resources and uh, they had an electrical system and uh, the the main resources, the uh, uh, natural resources, were more concentrated in the north than the south. 
And so after they cleaned up the after-war mess, um, North Korea surged forward and was increasingly prosperous during the 1960s and the 1970s. Whereas in South Korea, we were fumbling around uh, with a military leadership that didn't know much about Korea. Uh, early on, they had depended mainly on the Japanese from the old civil service, and uh, for doing that, the, the Korean people, of course, hated the Japanese. They had been an occupying force before. Here we were, uh, identified really with the former occupiers as being the new occupiers. Well, you'd think they'd get fed up with the whole damn thing and have some sort of insurrection. <clears throat> we should, you know what, we should just call the whole thing off. Yeah. Jeez. Kind of like in there Vietnam. Were, there were, and there were efforts, really, in, in, in Korea, in the, particularly in the South, uh, to do that. There were objections. And we kind of uh, tried to solve that problem by importing a pet Korean. Maybe you remember his name? Singman Ree? Yeah. That rings a bell. Was he one of our puppet guys? Yeah. He had... He had come to the United States um, in the 1920s, 30s, and had gotten an education in the United States, got a Ph.D. from Princeton, as a matter of fact. Um, and, and during the period when the Japanese were still occupiers, he kind of led a group of, uh, of Koreans who lived about, you know, apart from Korea, trying to organize some way of throwing the Japanese out. Um, well, kind of like uh, the Cubans uh, who were in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> nice analogy. Nice analogy. And, and it, it never did get off the ground, but after the war, we were looking for, the Americans were looking for somebody who they thought they could trust and had some competence to become the leader and to lead a democracy, and uh, he was the go-to guy. So we put him in there? That's right. How'd that go? Well, uh, not so well, because when, when the war, the conflict was over, um, three years into the conflict, 1953, it, China was tired of it, United States wanted to be out of it, and that happened to be the spring when Stalin died. That was good news. And, and, and there was a sense in the leadership all around that it was time to settle this thing. Uh, and, and they weren't going to settle it in, in much of an agreement. They just decided they were tired of the problem. They negotiated an exchange of prisoners. And uh, we're going forward with that. Uh, Singman Rhee, at that point, was in control of the South Korean administration. And uh, one dark night, he just set the North Korean prisoners free, several thousand of them, because he didn't want to give them back. <laughs> Which, of course, he was, trying, he was trying to blow up the deal. Well, it's a lot cheaper that way, too, if you think about it. That's right, and so he wanted the Americans to fight on, 
MacArthur was willing to talk about using nuclear weapons against China, against North Korea. Uh, he wanted to carry that battle on, and and, uh, and so did MacArthur, by the way. But uh, how did the, uh, how did China join the, this little fracas? Well, if you accept the notion that Stalin was kind of the lead man in terms of communist theory and thought, Mao Zedong was the emerging, had been the emerging leader in China. By 1949, he had kicked out nationalists, and uh, he, he deferred to Stalin's uh, point of view about dominating the North. Um, Stalin supplied the military arms and, and supplies and so forth, and it was up to China to supply the personnel. And they were willing to send in um, hordes, uh, as the Americans you know, would call them, hordes of fighters. 100,000 at a time in a platoon. That's, that's right. Yeah. Well, what a mess. You know, what, 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 I keep going back to this main point again. It's like it's like the people who live there don't count. <laughs> it's like, well, they ne they never did. Uh, they, they were never they they were never treated to count. And no. Jack will tell you that. But it, it's uh, and I think back and I go, you know, I think I was born because of the Korean War, but that's another story altogether. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. As an objection to the war, Howard was born. Okay. I started out an objector, an objector right off the bat. I came flying out with a flag and it's going mad at me. Okay. I had a, ban a banner on me that said Vietnam to come. Yeah. I think any time that we forget that people who live there might want to run their own country, well, we, we have problems. That was a lesson that did not carry forward, you, as, as you know. Um, it took a long time before uh, South Korean people took ownership of their country. Now, I'd remind you there's still about 250,000 American military over there, um, but we don't intrude very much on their uh, civil government. We just kind of invade their golf courses. Oh, well, so, so that's Jack, good news because you get a tax break uh, if you have a golf course. Was Tiger there this Jack, week? Jack, let's 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 move up to today for to, like, yeah. literally today. And they're they're uh, in Hawaii now. There's uh, uh, alarms, and they're um, yeah. you know. I mean, let's talk about this. I mean, it, it, could this happen? How do you see this? Okay. Uh I think the I think the objective fact. Um, let's just remind people of what they are. That that the current Kim now has operational weapons, uh, rockets that can get as far as the United States. That's the latest evaluation that it can hit the major cities of the United States, not just Hawaii. And uh, they have also successfully. Um, used, generated, uh, tried out their nuclear weapons. Um, so you put those two facts together, and you say, "Hey, wait, we're, we got good reason to be scared. We've been we've been throwing flames at them for a long time. Maybe they'll do something about so it." So let's say they do do something about it, and a, and, a, and a missile goes in the air, and it's got 14 minutes to get here. 
we got 14 minutes to find our way under the car. Um, <laughs> As if that's going to help. That's yeah, that's going to help. No, right. you, you, know, you drop, stop, and roll. That's uh, that's it. But but what do we, uh, if they dare do that, what do we do to them? Well, you know, the, we've been lived with a Russia that had nuclear weapons and the United States that had nuclear weapons, and we were both new at it. And the prospect was, will we kill each other? And we came to a mutual understanding that these were the unusable weapons. Um, I think they're still the unusable weapons. But the, th the theory is that we can't do anything to Korea that they don't want because if we threatened their existence, they could strike us back in a very serious way. No, I, I, I agree, but I, I don't think we're going to do that. That would uh, be foolish unless there was some strange reason that we didn't know about to do it. But um, let's say they did it. Let's say they did it to us first. They would no longer exist. That's uh, that. Yeah, that's they. That's they would be gone within three hours. Three hours is long. Language was mutually assured destruction. Yeah, they're yeah. gone. They're gone. I mean, yeah, but yeah. It's said mutually assured destruction. Yeah. Well, the, the, the issue here is that um, the effect on the rest of that portion of the world would be devastating. Okay, Mark, you're not, you're not our guest, but I'll ask you: <laughs> why, why do you why do you think that? Well, if they, a nuclear fallout throughout that region of the world, and and whether or not China would act, just as we are allies with England and Japan, they're allies with North Korea. Could they in, uh, decide to re retaliate or respond? I don't know. Well, that's, that's Jack. Jack, yeah, Jack, that's why we don't let Mark talk that much. Oh, stop it, Howard. <laughs> Burl, have you, got, have you got a copy of the cover of the book? Yeah, I do. I'll hold it up to the microphone so people can see it. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you talk about the book? Anyway, we've got, we've got the wheels and the gears interlocked from all the way from China down to the U.S. via South Korea, North Korea, and in the middle of that are the gears around the atomic, the uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, there's a mutual interdependency here, and the thing that's restraining uh, everybody is because you can't just do a minor nuclear attack. It's just, it's just not possible. Okay, so that that prevents that all of the. gets is because if you hurt me, I can hurt you, I can devastate you. Um, and and that makes, that's an unanswerable um, likelihood. We couldn't even go in there with an invasion force. I mean, hey, the rocket launching locations are such that uh, they could get those missiles off before uh, a military even a strike force could get to them. So it's, it's really their defense rather than their offense. The threat of the weapons is their defense. Smart. Now I got a question about the psychology of North Korea here. Okay. Uh, it seems to me, correct me if I'm mistaken or misreading it, they seem a uh, extremely paranoid bunch. 
that the people have been so indoctrinated that uh, we're liable to do something rude to them at any minute that they're uh, very paranoid. Now, I heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I, it sounds believable, that they in North Korea lost 30% or more of their population due to uh, illness or disease at one time, uh, a few de maybe a decade or two ago, and we offered uh, humanitarian aid to go in there and help them, and so did some other countries, and they refused it because they're so paranoid. Well... If you if you were as lonely a nation as they, you know, with with basically one frenemy, namely China, one frenemy, and the rest of the world against you, uh, you might feel a little paranoid yourself. Right. Uh, so, so there is that about them, and and the the benefit to the elite that governs is that that keeps their people in line. Who else can they depend on? Nobody. Just their own leadership, who have built these weapons to prevent the rest of the world from uh, destroying them. Wow. That's so that's a, a psychology, so, if you will. Okay, so so it's it's defense. So in other words, if we hit first, they're, they're, that, that's when they shoot. That's um, correct. Okay. And the chances of us hitting first? Until uh, our current president, I would never have assumed that was a possibility. But even with our current president, I mean, it, it's it's craziness. It ain't gonna happen. It's not going to happen. I, I hope. Uh, no. I pray that I pray that you're right. Yes, it will never happen. Well, the political avenues. Uh, well, listen. I mean, listen. It, the, the the record of look how we stood with the Russians. For a long, long time. I mean, the Cold War was a pretty serious prospect, and both sides had the stuff, and and neither side ever used it. Now, I, we have we have since considered the nuclear catastrophe more likely because some outlaw gang stole or bought or found or uh, uh, used uh, something. Uh, that the government would not use. Yeah. Um, that's where we are in the world now. And, that, and so I, that same restraint is, if there's a restraint of any kind on North Korea, it is that one. So it's like can a you, stalemate can, can, there. Well, can you kind of give me just a, can you drill down on that a little bit? Uh, an outlaw gang uh, getting a hold of, how does that work? <laughs> I, well, let, let me give you one, just one scenario. Um, as we have, we and uh, the rest of the world has tried to cut off the economy of North Korea. We don't trade with them. Um, presumably, we we uh, use sanctions against them, um, and they've got this material and they know how to put it together. Um, what if they sold it to some rogue group? That's, um, that's a more dangerous possibility than uh, the prospect that they would intentionally use it on, for example, the United States or Japan or, or even China. When you talk about rogue group, who are we talking about? I'm talking about... Shall we shall we identify some um, African 
set up in uh, uh, on the coast where they've been pirating ships for the last 20 years. Uh, a group like that have enough money to buy a, a, a small nuclear weapon? Uh, maybe there are uh, other interests around the world that would would do that. Um, take take me take me through the sale of such a thing. How well, would, how would that happen, and who would who would who would contact whom, and, and how would that work, and how how could they get that piece of weaponry from either us, the Soviet Union, China, whoever's got them? We have heard from time to time about uh, lost um, um, weapons, bombs, for example, that were carried by American uh, um, airplanes and that were lost. Um, there are presumably ways to, uh, if you've got one of those, to transport it plant it in a city or a vulnerable place and threaten hold hostage whoever wanted to hold hostage by having a realistic nuclear weapon that could be uh, do untold damage to a city, to a country, um, to a banking system. <laughs> Oh, so just to make everybody in the audience, and especially those in our area, feel really good. Uh, so some, somebody could steal, get a hold of a bomb, plant it in Los Angeles, and say, guess what? Deliver me $20 million or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. $20 million is not enough. It's, uh, I mean, he didn't I buy hope, Jim Carrey hope, for that. I hope we're just talking a movie scenario or or one of Burl's uh, uh, books, but, you know, fiction. But, uh, yes, it's conceivable. So who did the Jack Ryan series? Was that Clancy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, he already did that. <laughs> I mean, that was that a, already a scenario. Um. You know, Mark, 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 I, that's, that's funny, but... but it's not know, funny. No, I know it's not. That's, that's where I was going. What if? Yeah. What if we woke up one day and there it is? Yeah. Um, Good question. Any suggestions, Jack? No, I'm just <laughs> saying there, it is conceivable uh, that somebody would have a ransom plot. I, I can't imagine what the amount of the ransom would be and how it would be... Uh, negotiated, but uh, but it's conceivable. What if they didn't want just money? What else would they want? Um, pol uh, Shia law. That was no. asking our, our guest. Well, you gotta. It's gotta be portable, right? Whatever, whatever you're seeking. Sure. It's gotta be portable, and money seems to be the most convenient. I like money. Someone could say they had it and be lying. They're not going to get away with it, though. It's just not going to happen. I, mean, I, I say that uh, flippantly, but but uh, that kind of money that we're talking about, that kind of situation, so they give them the money, what do they do, hand over the bomb? That's not going to happen either. Well, I, I hope you're right. I, this, is, this, is, this is not my drama, but that's the... 
drama that's available out there um, because because there are these horrible weapons of uh, the, of in, intimidation. Well, you know, I keep going back, not that I do it that often, World War One. About a year before World War One, I, I remember uh, Sir Abbas Effendi came to America, and they were asking about things over there in the Balkans and everywhere else, and he said, the weapons bring the war. Well, it, 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 there's a sense in which, I mean, how old were you after the end of the war? Uh, when did you become conscious of the threat of, a, of atomic weaponry and so forth? Uh, but from 1945 to the present day, um, it's not been used in anger. Now, that, in 1950, uh, I didn't know that I knew that. I didn't know. I, I was more distrustful about it at that time than I am today. Meaning what? Well, meaning at the time, the probability, in, in 1950, it seemed like the probability was likely that somebody would bomb somebody with a nuclear weapon. Hence all of the bomb shelters that were built in that time period. <laughs> Yeah, got those fallout shelters. I remember I went to a talk by uh, uh, Ruhia Khanum, uh, who lived in Israel, and they asked her if she, if she had, uh, you know, uh, like a fallout shelter or, if, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. And she said, if someone were to drop a bomb on Israel, she says, I would, and I had a whole bunch of rice, I wouldn't have time to cook it, let alone eat it. <laughs> let me tell you how it was in, in, the, in the 50s and early 60s. My father sold aluminum siding. And the second fallout shelters became something, he started selling fallout shelters. And you know what? Sold a lot of them. People bought them. And it, it was scary. It was scary as a, a, to, to be a kid then. Well, yeah. We, got, we were told that if a nuclear war had landed on our school, we'd just hide under our desk. We'd be okay. Yeah, we'd be fine. They, they, they also had, we had to sign a piece of paper that said, in the event of a nuclear war, do you want to run home or do you want to be taken to a, on a school bus to a cave in the mountains? <laughs> and your parents had to sign off on it. I'm still living mother, in that cave in the mountains. Did your mother sign that? Yeah, they had to, we had to sign that. Did your mom sign it or did you... Uh, no, we said, I said I'd run home. I just wouldn't look at the blast. That's all. Your chances were probably just as good that way. Yeah. But anyway, I, I think the amazing thing about about the history is to say that here we are, um, 70 years past, more than 70 years past the use of a nuclear weapon, and it hasn't happened since. I don't want them to what use it. <laughs> but the, the, as you do mention this thing about crackpots, and they do exist out there. I was, <laughs> I was asked. Uh, I always get a plug for one of my books in sooner or later. Uh, when there was a movie called Stealth about this giant uh, airplane that uh, you know could go, uh, you couldn't see it. We have them, but they're tiny little things. But in, in this version, it was a big, huge plane that had brain damage, and it was going to go around and blow things up. Uh, in the book, excuse me, in the movie, it never said why. It never said who the bad guys were or anything. And so uh, when I did the novelization of the screenplay, I had to fill in all these plot holes. And, and one of them was why? Well, who would dare want to have well, this thing with nuclear capabilities flying around, blowing crap up? And I said, 
Well, there's there's two ways of looking at it. Uh, one is the United States is going to. You could only take. I've got a hold of a document from the uh, United States Navy called Strike Star 2025, and it said that two of these planes could occupy any country. People would be so paranoid you could occupy a country with two of these planes. And the country they were going to occupy? The United States. We would use it to occupy ourselves. Uh, the producers and the publishing company said, that is too realistic, that is too damn scary, no, don't use that. So I said, okay, I've got another one. How about the United States uses this plane, stealth plane with nuclear capabilities, to attack Japan and blame it on North Korea. And being with our uh, deal with Japan, we're their protector, we step in and steal all of their proprietary computer information. <laughs> and some great recipes. And some great recipes. And you know what? Sony loved it. They loved the idea of the United States <laughs> attacking them and blaming it on North Korea. Oh, that's a good scenario. Yeah, it's a good scenario. But, I mean, if I could make up something like that, so could somebody else who really, who isn't just typing on a, you know, a word processor, but actually has this stuff. Well, I want to go. I want to go back because you were talking about how suddenly now, with with the latest tests under uh, the current Kim, we have they they we know they have the capability of putting a weapon on us, on, on our even on our country. Well, that's new information, and that's scary information. But realize that Japan. In South Korea have been sitting there within easy target distance for all these years. And the North has indulged itself in warlike talk again and again and again. Uh, but the biggest thing it has done is, is steal an American observation um, boat um, back in the 90s. The, Port the Pueblo? Yeah. And, and they... While they talk this talk, and they, we know they have the capability, they really haven't done it. They have tried to assassinate. They, um, they tried to assassinate the, the president of South Korea a couple of times. Oh. Um, and uh, the most recent assassination was that the current Kim assassinated his older half brother um, in in uh, Japan somewhere, uh, but. They, really, the, uh, the warlike activity, if you, if you have a survey among South Koreans, 25 years and old and younger, they don't even think about North Korea. They're not concerned about North Korea. They're living their lives. What are they concerned with? Well, they're concerned with their golf score and their income, um, you know, uh, but... I'm just saying that they've lived next door to this now for a couple of generations, and uh, it's not as scary to them as it is to us. That's interesting. Uh, reminds me of the situation, and uh, I was talking to people, Cubans who were talking about the sanctions against Cuba, and they said, we have lived with them for so long, it doesn't mean anything to us. That's right. And, and that, that's the circumstance in, the, in this relationship. So maybe we should take a clue from them. Well, 
I, I think I think the fears in the United States that are now aroused by the current information um, are not are not nearly as uh, worrisome as people are making it become. They, we have lived with nuclear weapons all this time and, and haven't used them. Now, that's not to say there hasn't been talk about it. Again, going back to the Korean conflict, um, MacArthur wanted to use nuclear weapons on China. Well, that would have been a swell idea. Yeah, <laughs> and he was overruled by the politicians. Um, well, in, in your mind, how would that have played out? Have you thought that one through? Well, I think that uh, the whole... The, look where we have come now with China. Uh, since, since Nixon opened the relationship with China and Mao Zedong back in the 70s, prior to that, there was all this hostile talk. And the, and the possibility of reopening war, and we had all those troops down there in South Korea, and, and what about Formosa, and, and all of that stuff. Yeah, Kamoy and Matsu. Exactly. Um, and now, uh, well, that relationship has changed and matured and improved, and by the way, get, trying to get to a kind of a, a conclusion about how do we get out of this box that you've been asking about, uh, it's the leadership of, of China that I think will manage the conflict. Uh, the leadership of China, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, is probably the, the um, more creative and effective leader of Asia than certainly our president is. And uh, I, I, if I was going to count on anybody to solve this problem, I would count on him. Well, what are, what are China's China's goals? Do they do they want they don't want uh, another nuclear power on their border? True. And they certainly don't want a unified Korea that's that's democratic. That's correct. So, um, what what do you think that he could do uh, to calm the situation down? Well, as, as the only, as I said, frenemy that uh, North Korea has, they've got a great deal of, of leverage, and they don't want that state to fail. And to the extent that the nuclear threat that they constitute to the rest of the world creates incentives to be um, imposing on North Korea, to China's disadvantage, China should reach in and manage the conflict. You know where I'm coming from? Well, they, they have leverage that we don't have. They have leverage that we don't have. And, and they have stakes that we don't have because they are neighbors. And because if, the, if that place, North, if North Korea totally fails, uh, where are those starving North Koreans going to go? There's only one place they can go, and that's to China. And they don't um, want that. That's not, that's, they're, not, they're not that welcome in China. Um, meanwhile, Xi has great ambitions about China, about being a, a leader in the world, um, about 
it, it, their economic power and uh, his his way of ingratiating himself with the West is to control North Korea in our behalf. That would be a really wise move. And it would be good for us. So let's all hope that that happens, which it might. I mean, China is, you know, whether you like it or not, China is a country of the future. They got the population, they got the economy, they got, uh, you know, there's no real communism there per se, uh, as they got two systems, one country, two systems. And uh, they're uh, something that we want to be friends with. Well, and, and they, look what they have accomplished. I mean, in, in the time since Mao put his, um, uh, made peace with us, and then the when Mao passed away, uh, Deng was able to liberate the economy in ways that Mao wouldn't do. And once that became liberated, China has become an increasingly wealthy country. I, was, I spent uh, some time there um, back in the late 90s, and uh, the, the way of living in China was remarkably pleasant. Um, I was on a campus. The kids were going to the university. They were docile, good students, working hard, dressed well, uh, wanted, had aspirations for what they could become because... China has changed its total outlook. Uh, they're, they're entrepreneurs, and uh, they're enriching their society, and uh, they're for progress. I'll tell you a little story here. The, uh, the guy who I believe is now or was in charge of uh, trade in China was educated in the United States. Uh, he lived with my brother uh, in Seattle at the time. Uh, and, and was uh, studying international trade law and everything at the uh, University of Washington. And when he went back to China, <laughs> he had his Mao uh, suit, the Chairman Mao suit, you know, the fabric. He bought it at Nordstrom's. <laughs> <laughs> Good story. Good story. Uh, which you, is, know, you know who did that? was uh, Gene Rayburn from Match Game. He was infatuated with Chairman Mao. Who knew that Gene Rayburn was a big fat commie? But yeah, he did the same thing. He came. He came to the show dressed as in the Chairman Mao getup. You believe that crap? That's amazing. Yeah, Koei Wan is the, the fellow's name. A uh, real nice guy. You know what he couldn't? What, what stunned him is he's staying at my brother's, and we was he was going to come down to Walla Walla, Washington, uh, for Thanksgiving or something, right? And what he found so amazing was that. He, no one had to get government permission to travel from Seattle, Washington, to Walla Walla, Washington. You could just get in your car and go there. He thought that was really interesting stuff. The book is called The Korean Crisis by Jack Vanderslick. One people, two nations, a world on the brink. Buy it, read it, believe it. It's from Wild Blue Press, our close personal friends. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you very much. Thank you for hosting me. Oh, our pleasure. We'll have you again after the war. <laughs> hey, bro. What? What's next? Hey. Get you, get you.